Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We turn today to this study of the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 12, which really begins the second half of the book, content-wise, not necessarily outline-wise. But we come to Revelation chapter 12. Here we begin the third and final interlude, or parenthesis, in the revelation of the judgments of God that are contained in the seven-sealed book that was in the hand of God on the throne and was given to Christ, who has unsealed the book. The seals being the record, the ordinance, the commands of God concerning His righteous judgments on apostate Israel, those who crucified the Son of God. Those judgments are spoken to us in three series. The six seals, the seventh seal containing the seven trumpets, and after the seventh trumpet, we have the seven vials. But in between the revelation of those judgments, we have these parentheses or interludes in the march of judgment. This is our third and final one. It covers chapter 12 through the end of chapter 14. There are five parts to this interlude. There is the woman, the dragon, her man-child and her seed in chapter 12. Then we see the two beasts in chapter 13. Then in the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, we have the vision of the Lamb and the 144,000. Number 4, we have the message of the three angels. Chapter 6, verses 6 to 13 of the 14th chapter. And then the fifth part is the vision of the harvest of the earth. After this interlude, we return to the judgments of the seven-sealed book. And we see the, the uh, pouring out of the vials of the wrath of God upon the land. Now, it's important as we begin to get a feel for the structure. It's always important when you read your Bible. These things are not random thoughts. They are put together with the consummate skill of God himself. And to understand the Bible, we need to see it as a uh, a wonderfully constructed, logical, reasonable, understandable book. But we have to stop and think about what we are looking at, where it fits in the message. So let's first of all look at chapters 12 and 13. We'll consider more the uh, other three parts, the lamb, the message of the angels, and the harvest later. But chapters 12 and 13 go together in this interlude, in a very uh, important and special way. In these two chapters, we are given the revelation of God concerning the war between Christ and Satan. Or, to put it a little bit more expansively, between the woman, her son, the Christ, and the dragon. This is the background that we need to understand when we look at the persecution of the church. And, of course, that was very important in the first century. 
as the Jewish believers in the land of Palestine were being relentlessly persecuted by the Jews, and then the terrible persecution of Nero upon the Christians throughout the empire, the church needed to be prepared for that and to understand it. And chapters 12 and 13 give them that preparation and give them that understanding, and so it gives us in our day preparation for an understanding of persecution. And to look at the world and to look at the sufferings of the church and to look at evil rulers and and apostate churchmen turning their wrath and anger against God's people, shedding their blood even. Why? What is happening here? What we were given in this vision is behind the scenes that we will see what is happening, what is taking place. Chapter 12 is a vision that depicts Satan's hatred and hostility toward the Messiah and his people. When we speak of his people, we speak of the true church, the true Israel of God in both its Old Testament and New Testament forms. There is only one church in the Old Testament and New Testament, one elect body of believers. They're in different administrations of God's covenant, but they're the same church. In other words, we are one with Abraham, we are one with David. Solomon, and the people of God of the Old Testament, with Isaiah. He's part of our church. We're part of his. One people of God. And chapter 12 shows us Satan's hatred and hostility toward the true church. Chapter 13 is a vision that depicts the human agents of Satan as he visits his hatred and hostility on the Messiah and his church. So chapter 12, we see the dragon, we see Satan, who is the source of all the persecution and hostility toward the people of God. But then in chapter 13, we see his human agents, and there are two beasts that are his human agents. There's the beast from the sea, and there's the beast from the land. And then in the beginning of chapter 14, which we should understand, that is verses 1 to 5, with 12 and 13, I think there was a a mistaken chapter division there by the people who divided the Bible into chapters. Because that really sums up those two sections and the war and the hostility by showing who gets the victory, who wins the war, who overcomes Satan's hostility. And the picture is that of the Messiah and the 144,000 standing victorious after all of the uh, venom and all of the evil and all of the hostility of the devil that he could bring toward them, they prevail. The church prevails. And so chapter 12, 1 through 14, 5 is a unit, one unit that we should understand. That means chapter 4, 6, 14, 6 to the end is another unit. Now in regard to this first unit, chapter 12, 1 to 14, 5, Beckwith states this. The apocalyptist, that is he means John, the apocalyptist introduces here a revelation of the forces operating behind the events and the agencies employed. Two visions are given. The first, chapter 12, reveals the cause of the persecutions which the faithful suffer and must continue to suffer in the coming distress. This is Satan's fierce hostility to the Messiah. 
The second vision, chapter 13, gives a picture of the agent through which Satan is waging and will wage unrelenting war with the Messiah's, Messiah's followers, the saints. This is the beast which receives all his might and authority from Satan, and which together with his helper, the second beast, uses all his delegated power to accomplish Satan's purposes. End quote. Or to put it more simply, chapter 12 is a vision of Satan's war on the Messiah and his people, and chapter 13 is a vision of Satan's human agents in that war. These two chapters, and including the first part of chapter 14, give us a biblical theology of persecution. Number one, its source, Satan. Number two, its objects, Christ and his people. And number three, its human instruments, the two beasts. And we will wait till we get to chapter 13 to identify who those beasts are. And number four, in our theology of persecution, We learn here who the victors are in the conflict. Not Satan or the beasts, but Christ and his church. So a very hopeful, very encouraging chapter. Section, chapters 12, 13, and the beginning of 14. Now we're looking at chapter 12, beginning our study of chapter 12 tonight. So if you look in the back of your bulletin and your outline there, Chapter 12 concerns a vision of the woman, the dragon, her man-child, and her seed. And this vision of chapter 12 concerning the woman, the dragon, the man-child, and the woman's seed has three sections. And look at them with me there in your outline. Number one, The first section deals with the hatred and hostility of the dragon toward the woman and her man-child. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. We have a vision of a glorious woman in the heaven, or better, sky. Then it's followed by a vision of a grotesque dragon in the heaven, the sky. That's verses 3 and 4. And then we have the birth of the child of the woman and his ascension to the throne of God in verse 5. And then number 4, we have the flight of the woman into the wilderness for a place of protection. This is followed then, verses 7 to 12, with the war between the dragon and his angels and Michael, his angel, and his angels. And finally, in the chapter, we see the hatred and hostility of the dragon toward the woman and her seed in verses 13 to 17. So this is the structure. This is how this is um, put together. And as we explain it, hopefully become more understandable and uh, the beauty and the power of this section will speak to you. I found in studying for this week, uh, just it overwhelmed me. And I I come today before you thinking that I feel so inadequate to even explain this passage because of the weightiness of it, the importance of it, to, to our understanding of God's purpose for his church and really for understanding biblical history, the Bible, and what is going on in the accounts that we read in Old Testament and New Testament of the spiritual warfare that is there. It's a very powerful, very moving, very important part, not only of Revelation, but of the whole Bible. Amen. The whole Bible. This, in a sense, gives us one perspective 
an important perspective to, to view the revelation of God in Scripture. Only one perspective. Of course, the other perspectives are found in, in for example, the, the, the redemptive work of Christ. But that, that is found in this as well. But let's look at this now. I want to read verses 1 to 6. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had the place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand Two hundred and three score days. As I've already pointed out, I believe there's four parts to this section. And the first, the first three introduce the main characters in the vision. And the fourth prepares the way for what's to follow in the chapter. But let's begin by looking at this vision of a glorious woman in the sky. In the heaven, or better, the sky. Now remember, John is receiving a vision here. He's describing what is shown to him in vision, visionary form, because he says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. It appeared to his eyes. He saw this, and he's describing this. And so when you read your Bible and you look at the circumstances, try to read it in the dramatic sense in which it is being communicated. I mean, think of this. John says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. That's sometimes how we read our Bibles, even our own. Sometimes it's good to read your Bible in devotional way, out loud, and read it with the passion that's in the words of the speaker, the writer. And so John now, after talking of the seventh trumpet and all the mighty things there, the thunderings, the lightnings, the voices of verse 19 of chapter 11, he, he says, and now what would you think? But there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A new vision is given to him. He says he saw a great wonder. Now, this word wonder or great wonder, the two words, can be translated something like this, a great sign. The word that is translated wonder or is often translated sign indicates an event, a token, or some kind of sign that has special meaning. And it is often translated as a wonder. It's used of Christ's miracles. They were wonders. They created great wonder and awe in those who beheld them. But they were more than just wonders. They were signs pointing to who Christ was. These wonders of miracles were shouting out, as it were, this is the Christ of God. 
And so the wonder is something that is a event, a special, powerful event, or a special token that has a special meaning. This vision of this great wonder in heaven, John is telling us, has great meaning. It's important. Do not misunderstand this. It's also said in verse 3, the same thing, another wonder, this dragon. These are two very important figures, the woman and the dragon. It is very important that we see this vision and understand it, John is telling us. He's telling us it reveals the three major players of history, all history, all human history, as recorded in Scripture and in the history of the New Testament, Old Testament. And it's the history of things that John is writing about in his letter here, his revelation, the things which must shortly come to pass for the time is at hand. Very important here. Do you want to understand history? John says, understand this vision. All important. Everybody mentioned about the words heaven or in heaven and said that they they should better be, for our understanding, to understand them as the sky or what the Old Testament calls the firmament, the atmosphere, the space above the earth wherein we see the clouds, the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is not talking about heaven as the dwelling place of God, as the third heaven, but the atmospheric heavens above us, where these wonders of God, sun, moon, and stars appear. But in that canvas of the sky, what John sees is this woman and then the dragon. I think there's something to this that it's shown in the sky, and that is this. In human life, the sun, moon, and stars, and the atmosphere, with their clouds, that's the main thing about the atmosphere, how it affects us, affect everything on earth. All of life is affected by what happens in the sky, whether it's night or day, whether it is hot or cold, whether it is there is rain or drought, whether there is the new moon or the full moon, and the tides every day, the the world's oceans and waters are drawn back and forth by the moon. The whole world is affected by what is in the sky. And I think that's the part of the understanding of this vision, that what he's showing here affects everything in human life, human spiritual life. The activities of men and nation are all determined by what's in the sky, but not here the physical aspects of life, but the spiritual And what affects all of human life is this woman and this dragon. You see that? What I'm trying to say here. This is a wonder that is being given to us. And we're being called upon to understand that all of human life is affected by these figures. The woman, the dragon, and her man-child. Just as we cannot imagine life on this earth without the atmospheric heavens and the moon and the stars and the sun and the clouds and all of that. We cannot imagine life in God's world and what He's doing in His world without understanding this. 
So the first wonder he sees is a woman clothed with the sun. And the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So who is this woman? What is her identity? Look at the description that's given of her. And this is a glorious vision of a woman. Clothed with the sun, the radiance of the sun. She has the moon under her feet. And she has a crown on her head of 12 stars. What a vision. But you know, there's a text in scripture that helps us understand this vision. Look back to Genesis 37, 9 to 10. We must always seek to follow the biblical truth that scripture is its own best interpreter. Revelation is filled with references to, allusions to earlier biblical truth. And without understanding them, we can get lost in it. We can assign meanings to passages that just sort of suit our fancy, but it is not God's meaning. This here in Genesis 37, we begin the story of Joseph and his brethren. Joseph was beloved of the Lord, not only Israel, but he was beloved of of the Lord, Israel meaning Jacob. God had a tremendous purpose for this man. In some and certain ways, Joseph is a type of Christ. He is a godly man who triumphs through all adversity. And this begins his story. And he dreams a dream, and we know who gave the dreams as the story unfolds. This was not just he ate the wrong food at night and he was, his mind was active. These were dreams given to him by God. They were prophetic dreams. And it says this, verse 5, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him even yet more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaves. And his brethren said to him, Shall thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hate him, him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Now I want you to understand they're hating him for the dream God gave him. They really are hating God and his purposes. But let's go to the next one because here's the, the key one for our passage. And he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars made obeisance to me. Here we have the sun, the moon, and really twelve stars, because as we will interpret this, Joseph is not being um, depicted, but he's one of the stars, ultimately made obeisance to me. And he told it to his mother and father and his brethren. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come bow down ourselves to the earth? You see, he understood that he was the sun, his wife was the moon, and the stars were the, were the sons of Jacob. And so what we have here in this vision in Revelation is a depiction of the woman being Israel, as it was in that dream. The woman being clothed with the sun, the moon and stars on uh, the moon and with the sun, moon under her feet, and 
having these 12 stars represents the church of God, the Old Testament covenant people. This is a reference to the church of the Old Testament, the church of the chosen people, the elect of all the nations of the earth. Listen to what Deuteronomy 7 says about Israel. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. End quote. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. You see, Israel had a glorious calling. She was the chosen bride and the wife of Yahweh. Interestingly, as being the wife of the Lord, called to be his wife, she was a helper suitable to him. By grace alone, of course. You see, he had prepared her to be the one through whom God would bring his word to the world. You see, Israel was a helper fit for him. God fitted her to be the very bride, the very wife that he needed to prepare the world for his son, Jesus Christ. She had a mission. It was a glorious mission. It was an exalted mission. It was a mission that no nation even began to approach. And so she's pictured here in this as the woman clothed with the sun. What woman? The bride of the Lord. Israel, the church of God. You see, he chose her to bring his word to the world. First of all, the word of revelation. Scripture. It was through the mouthpiece of Moses, of Samuel, of David, of the prophets, that God's word came to the world. It was through this glorious woman, his church, that God brought his revelation to the world. And even after the coming of Christ, it was through this same woman, Israel, that God brought the New Testament to the church. All the writers of the New Testament, except one, Luke, were of the people of Israel. Secondly, it was his purpose to bring the word of not only revelation, but the word of incarnation. Jesus Christ into the world through this people. It would come through the seed of Abraham. And through that literal physical line of Abraham, it would come down, pass down, and be narrowed to David, and then finally come into the world through Christ. This was the calling of Israel. This was the calling of the church of the Old Testament. And this glorious calling is reflected in this vision. This woman, this Old Testament church, this Israel people chosen of God are a glorious people, and they're depicted as such, clothed with the sun and the moon and stars one under her feet and the other on her head. So the crown of 12 stars that we see here refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. 
This is the Old Testament church that's in view here. The Old Testament. But I think these 12 stars show something even more because they are a crown. A crown speaks of dominion. And it is through the 12 tribes of Israel that the dominion task of God would be fulfilled. You see, we lost dominion when we sinned against God. But God had a purpose to restore dominion to us. Men had lost dominion over the world because of their sin. But God is going to restore it. And He's going to restore it through the 12 tribes of Israel. Because it is through them that the man-child is born who will rule all nations. And as Psalm 8 makes clear, as used in the book of Hebrews, that it is through Christ that man is given dominion, the dominion he lost. And so the woman, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, Upon her head, a crown of 12 stars, referring to the 12 tribes of Israel, refers to the Old Testament church that God called, that he elected and chose and made a glorious bride and used them mightily. It is through them that he will bring salvation to the earth. Now let's look at her travail and birth, verse 2. And she being with child, cried, Travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And so we move from the vision of Israel, the woman, that is the church of the Old Testament, to to her now in pain. Travailing in birth and crying out. It's why? Because she's with child. She being with child. Now the child in view in this highly symbolic vision is revealed In verse 5, which we read a moment ago, and we need to keep this in perspective as we look at it, though John, when he received the vision, hadn't seen this yet. But we know about it. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This child who would rule all nations with a rod of iron is based on Psalm 2. And therefore, it's referring to the Messiah, the Christ. You see, it was Israel's calling, and this goes with verse 1, to bring the Messiah into the world. This was first made known in God's revelation to Abraham when he said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God had chose Abraham, and it's the seed of Abraham that make up the Old Testament church because it is from Jacob, Isaac and then Jacob and then his 12 sons, but all are descendants of Abraham and would be through his descendants and then a descendants of the the greatest rank who would be the one who would bring blessings to all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham. Later it was revealed that the child of the woman, the church, that is the Messiah, the child, would come through a particular tribe, and that was Judah. It was then revealed later that it would come from a particular family in Judah, the house of Jesse, and that it would come from one particular son of Jesse, David. And so the woman is going to bring, that is Israel, is going to bring into the world Through the house of David, that is of the tribe of Judah, the house of David, this this child. 
But you know, the, when we look at this woman metaphor, when we look at this woman metaphor being used to speak of the church and about bringing in a child that's going to reign, where should our mind go to? A woman, her child, Genesis chapter 3, right? In other words, the very first revelation that was given to mankind, which was in the context of judgment on the serpent, were these words when God spoke to this evil serpent. He said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Enmity, warfare, hostility. This is what our passage is about. The enmity, the warfare, the hostility between the woman and the serpent. The woman and her seed and the serpent. So this really goes back and is grounded, this vision of the woman being the church is actually grounded in this revelation in, in Genesis 3. Enmity between thee and the woman. That's the subject of our text here in Revelation. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This would be a violent conflict. In the conflict, the seed of the woman would receive his bruises. Spoken here, bruising his heel. But the serpent would receive something far worse. A deadly wound. His head would be bruised. And so in the woman, Israel... And then through a woman of Israel, the promise of Genesis 3.15 finds its ultimate fulfillment. Now some may ask then, is not the woman in view here really in this passage, not really Israel, the church, but really Mary, the mother of our Lord? Verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was the rule nation. Wasn't that Mary? No, it is not. Directly. The woman here, I believe, is a symbol of the messianic community of Israel, the true church. Now, it is true that Mary was a faithful member of the messianic community and that she was chosen by God to be with child of the Holy Ghost and to be the mother of Jesus. But that's only in the secondary sense should we see Mary here. It is the church that is the woman. Mary was a member of that church. She was the chosen woman of the seed of David, to bring him into the world. It says here that this she's with child. The child is the Messiah. And she's travailing in birth for it, pain to be delivered. And this is a rich passage. I feel that I'm, I'm not doing it justice, but I think in this passage here, this travailing in birth, pain to be delivered, has two senses. There's, of course, the sense of the literal sense. We might think of, of Mary painting and travailing to be delivered uh, in the time of, of Christ's birth. But I think there's a sense in which, since the woman is the history of the whole Old Testament church, from the, the call in Abraham down to the time in which John is writing, this travailing in birth is really a picture of the whole painful history of Israel. All that Israel suffered. 
All that Israel went through in her calling to be the mother of the Messiah. Oh, what Israel had to learn. Oh, the judgment she had to face. Oh, the lessons. Oh, the persecution. Oh, the hatred. All of Israel's history in the Old Testament is really a picture of the mother of our Lord, that is the true church, travailing in birth and in pain to be delivered. But it certainly includes the period in which John is writing. That difficult period of time... uh, when Israel was under Roman tyranny. Right before the birth of Christ, the people of God, the true church in Israel, was groaning in pain under tyranny, the tyranny of Rome, and saying, when is our Messiah going to come? And you can picture the people of God crying out in that period for their Messiah to come and to deliver them. And so they're travailing, waiting and waiting and waiting. And you who are mothers know how that can be at the end as you, as the time of delivery gets closer and closer. And you say, oh, when will this delivery happen? And, and finally it does come. And it seems like this brings us all through Israel's history right up to the time when the, the people of God were uh, in great pain to be delivered of the oppression of sin and of mankind through the coming of their Messiah. And so here she is in travail to give birth. But now we move in verse 3 and 4 to another part of the vision. A vision here, not of a beautiful, glorious woman, but I'm calling this a grotesque dragon. So from beauty to ugliness, from glory to shame, from the height of God's mercy to the horror of satanic hostility, this vision moves. So John's here looking at this vision and seeing this glorious vision of a woman, but noticing she's crying out. She looks like a woman in pain to be delivered. And then all of a sudden, it says, there appears another wonder, another tremendous sign. A sign that has special meaning and we cannot miss. And what is it? It's a great dragon. Notice, too, it's, it's prefaced by the interjection. Behold! Oh my, this is what followed that great vision. Another one, behold, a great red dragon. Had seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns upon his head. What a grotesque looking being we see here. Now this word dragon comes from a Greek word that means to see clearly. I always like etymology and how words develop in their meaning. But its original root, the Greek word, was a verb to see clearly. But words can take their own course, and their original meaning can almost be completely lost in the development of the history of a language. And in this particular word, the the meaning of seeing clearly then developed, and I'm not sure why, but meaning a sinister look, a terrible and sinister look. So not just seeing clearly, but a sinister look. And then it referred to a serpent. So it went from see clearly to a sinister look to a serpent. Now, I don't know what was the course of the development of this word, but I can guess. Did you ever see a snake there looking at you? It is, it is a sort of a horrifying thing. There's something about the look of a snake that's sinister, right? Its eyes are piercing. They don't blink. Look at you, the red eyes or whatever color eye it has. And it's a sinister look. And so this idea of see clearly, sinister look led to the noun, our word is used here means a serpent. Because serpents 
are sinister and their look pierces us. It's like they're seeing right through us and they look evil. And so this word came to refer to a serpent. But then it had another development in language. It came to be associated then with the sinister evil beings of the spirit world. So we move from the literal serpent to evil spirit beings. And the serpent, the dragon, became known in the, in the literature of the ancient world as mythical creatures of chaos and evil. I saw a great red dragon or serpent. In our usage in English, dragon, which comes, by the way, from the Greek word here, let me give you a literal pronunciation of the word, dracon. That came over, that's the Greek word here, a dracon. That came over in our language as dragon. In our language, dragon refers to, as it develops, some kind of winged serpent usually with four legs (laughs) and great in size, sometimes fire-breathing. In fact, as we look at it today, we often think more of a fire-breathing lizard of some sort, a winged lizard. But put that aside and and just think here that we're talking about an evil spirit being, an agent of chaos and of evil. In fact, in the Old Testament, this word dragon or dracon was used and equated with serpents. But it was also equated with Leviathan and Rahab. Listen to these words. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. By the way, the the Hebrew word there for adder is python. So our word python comes from Hebrew. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion, and here's our word, the dragon, which Hebrew word referred to a large land or sea monster or serpent of some kind, says you will trample under feet, which of course is interesting in view of uh, Psalm 91. It's interesting in view of the original Genesis passage about bruising the heel but crushing the head. It's exactly what Christ did. Christ tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon. He trampled it under his feet. Though he received the bruise to his feet as he trampled it under, he conquered. Isaiah 27.1, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. That is this um, sea monster. Even Leviathan, a serpent, is what that refers to. That crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that's in the sea. And then Isaiah 51, 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days and the generation of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? The Hebrew word Rahab refers to a proud one. And it's used of Egypt. And that's the picture here. God cut Rahab. He cut down the proud one. But it's connected with the dragon. For it was the dragon, it was this evil spirit being that was behind Rahab that God cut down. And so in the Old Testament, the dragon is an embodiment of evil. Of the evil spirit that tempted man to sin in Genesis 3. 
of the dragon, of Leviathan, of the serpent, of Rahab. All of these are symbols of the enemy of God and his people. And so as John saw this great red dragon instantly to his mind, when he said, here is the enemy. Here is evil. Here is wickedness. Here is pride. Here is our opponent. The woman's opponent is revealed then in this part of the, of the vision. The woman being the church, the dragon being the creature of chaos and evil. And of course, we're told that this animal here is great. It's red. These are not to be overlooked. Great refers to its size and its fearsome features that depict its great evil powers. This is a powerful evil being. It is also red. And I think that those who have pointed this out as being a reference to blood are probably correct. This is a blood-shedding, blood-thirsty dragon. It loves blood. The blood of the saints is what it lives on and longs for. This is the dragon. In verse 9, which we didn't read yet today, as the vision goes on, we are told explicitly who the dragon is. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And so here we have the great antagonist, the great adversary, Satan, the devil. This, is, this may seem odd, but something, you ever write the name devil and Satan down? We said, well, that's a proper name to capitalize it. Not long ago, I just said, I will not capitalize that name. I will not give any honor to that being. If I have to write the name, I'm going to make a small d and a small s. There, Satan. That's what I felt. And so in my notes, it's always devil. It used to be devil and Satan in large, you know, capital letters to start it because it's a proper name. I will not give a proper name to this evil, wicked beast. Devil, small d, Satan, small s. It's just like if I disrespected you and your name and I put it on all small case. But I wouldn't do that to you. But to the devil. I refuse to put it in capitals anymore. Anyway, that's a side. Because there's hostility between us. There's hatred. He hates us. And friends, we need to hate him. The, the great red dragon follows the woman. And it says he has seven heads and ten horns. And seven crowns upon his heads. What does this mean in the vision? The woman had a crown of twelve stars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. This one, this evil being of chaos and destruction is shown with seven heads Ten horns and seven crowns. This, I believe, is describing the dragon's power over the nations. All the kingdoms of the world and their kings are subservient to him. At the point of this revelation, as it's developing what is behind the story of the whole book of Revelation. 
What is the background we need to understand? We need to understand the whole background of the Old Testament and the struggle between the woman and the dragon which came to its head in the days of Christ and the apostles. You see, in the Old Testament period, Satan's rule over the nations was unchallenged. We're told in the New Testament that the God overlooked the nations. The only witness he gave to them directly was creation. No prophets were sent to them. There were some intimations of what he would do in the New Testament and reach out to the nations when he sent Jonah and so on. But they were left in darkness. By the way, that's a hard doctrine especially for those who are of the belief that it is man's free will that decides salvation. God didn't even give him a witness of the word of God in that day. By the way, the witness he did give them, the glory of creation of his own glory, they turned it into idolatry. So they're guilty. They rejected the, the, the uh, revelation they were given. So we can't feel sorry for the, the Gentiles, which were our ancestors. If you're a Gentile, your Gentiles' ancestors lived under the total dominion and darkness of Satan. Everything was superstition. Everything was false gods. Everything was human sacrifice. Everything was darkness, witchcraft. That's the background. And Satan, this picture, I think, saying he had unchallenged um, sovereignty over the nations at that period of history. But when the gospel came, and, the, and, and Paul, for example, he said, in the days of your ignorance, God overlooked you. He didn't care about... He, well, I shouldn't say it that way. He just said he overlooked you. But now, the message of the gospel is coming to you Gentiles, and he commands all men everywhere to repent. But before that time, Satan had un restricted, except in God's sovereign purposes, restricted. But I'm talking about among men, he ruled supreme. And that's why when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan could say to him, look, here are all the kingdoms of the world. They belong to me, and I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. He was speaking the truth. And that's what this picture is of, the seven heads and ten horns. It's been pointed out that if you look at the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts. And there are, if you count the total heads of the four beasts, because the last beast had four heads, there's seven heads. And those beasts represent world empires. The horns in Daniel often represent the succession of the kings in those empires, or even maybe in this passage more particularly of the lesser kings. So all the mighty empires were under Satan's power. All the lesser kings of the world were his. They were upon his head. He rules them. He is the prince of darkness of the world. He owns them all except one, Israel. God has reserved Israel to himself. He has a purpose for Israel. And Satan knows that. And all through history, Satan has waged war against Israel. It is the burr in his saddle. It is the, it is the pebble in his shoe. Ah, oh, I don't have Israel. I've got him all, you know, and he hated Israel. 
And so this is the staggering antithesis of the opening scene of the vision. The woman, the true church versus the dragon, the devil. And it's portrayed to us on the canvas of the sky, meaning the canvas of all world history. The drama of all world history is right here in these verses. The woman, God's chosen people and his instrument, and the devil, the antagonist. Started in the, in the Garden of Eden. The woman versus the serpent. Now, verse 4. We've seen the dragon, but now we get into his scheme, his purpose. This terrible creature of, of, of darkness and chaos and evil and death. He has a purpose. What is the purpose? Verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, before I comment on the tail of the dragon bringing down a third of the stars, I'm going to look at the conflict itself, and then go back and comment on that because I think it'll give us. I think you'll understand my interpretation of those stars after, you look, after we look at this part. So we have the dragon here standing before the woman who was ready to be delivered. The word stood here indicates someone on the alert, standing there with the tension of full focus, ready to act on the moment. And so the, this dragon, in this vision now, we see standing before the woman who's ready to give birth to the child. Now remember, the woman is the symbol of the true people of God. And what does this teach us? It teaches us this. Satan has always given his chief attention to the woman. He knows that she is the real adversary. And the one, here it is, who alone can defeat him. Satan, you know, he doesn't really care too much about the world. He's got them. It's you that he hates. It's you that he fears. It's the church that he fears. And his attention is always focused on the woman. He's got the world in his hip pocket, but he doesn't have us. And he knows that God is going to use us. And ever since he heard the judgment in the Garden of Eden that it would be the seed of the woman that would destroy him, he has been on high alert to thwart and destroy the woman, and if he can't do that, to destroy her seed. This is history. Because his goal here is to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, why would he want to devour her child as soon as it was born? It's because the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. He knows the only way he can prevail is to destroy the seed. He sees the battle in history not between himself and God, but between the woman and the child in himself. Because he thinks if he can defeat the woman, kill the child, God's purposes will evaporate and he won. This is the, this is the heart of the war, my friends. Of all history, between the dragon and the woman and the child that she is to bring into the world. And so he's there on alert to devour the child as soon as it was born. The word here, as soon as, means whenever or when. 
doesn't necessarily mean nor be understood that the exact moment of birth he is going to strike. But it means that when that child is born, sooner or later he must take it down. And all of his efforts will be to kill that child. And it's interesting the word devour here shows the beastly nature of this dragon. It comes from uh, the word that's used of beasts of prey who with their mouth, with their claws, rip to shreds their prey and devour them. That's, this, is, this is a beast. This is a beastly creature. And by the way, that's why his henchmen are called beasts in the next chapter because they are the actual claws and the actual teeth of Satan to rip to shreds his opponents. That is the church. And so Satan would seek to destroy the woman. He's always trying to do that. But failing at that, and the woman somehow continues, his next plan is to make sure he kills her seed, her child, the promised child. You know, Satan's knowledge of the plan of God is limited, and it's perverted by his intense hatred for God. You know, we give Satan way too much credit that he knows too much. Do you think he knows the Bible as well as you? Absolutely not. He only knows the Bible as it suits his purposes to try to find out the plans of God, but he doesn't have the Spirit of God to show him the plans of God. And that's why if the princes of this world knew, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. If Satan knew what the crucifixion meant to him, he never would have crucified Christ. He thought killing Christ on the cross was his victory. It was his defeat. Satan is stupid. It's the stupidness of sin. It's the foolishness of evil. Let's not fear him in that sense. We know more than he knows. We need to be courageous. So don't give Satan credit for being a a scholar of the Bible. He could never write a systematic theology. Because his theology is far from systematic. It is chaos that he, he deals with, not system. But throughout biblical history, what we see him trying to do, and he doesn't understand what's happening. He's trying to react to events. He doesn't know, for example, if David is the Messiah. So what does he try to do? Kill David. Kill David. And when it turns out David's not the Messiah, he moves on to other victims. He doesn't know what's going on. But he has his hunches. See, he he thought maybe Joseph was the Messiah. He didn't know. So i got to kill Joseph. So what does he do? Inspires the brothers with hatred and envy to kill him. And so throughout biblical history, we see Satan trying to do one or two things. One or both things, I should say. Destroy the woman, that is the church, or destroy the child who is to be born through her. Who is destined to be his conqueror. That's Old Testament history. And it carries on into the New Testament as well. well let, let me just look at a few examples with you of Scripture of how the, the dragon, who doesn't really know what's going on, but is always trying to thwart the woman by killing her or his child, is revealed. Here we have the dragon standing before the woman, the church, who's ready to be delivered so he can devour her child. Let's look at some examples of Scripture. I've already mentioned a few, but let me go back and put it a little bit more systematically. Let's go back to the very beginning. Satan looked at the first two offsprings of Eve. Remember, it was her seed that was going to destroy him. So his first thought was, one of these these two young men must be the one. But as he observed them for a while, he realized Cain was his. 
Cain was his. But this Abel, he worships God. He offers sacrifices according to God. He has a heart for God. There's the enemy. So what does he do? He stirs up Cain, chapter 13 in Revelation, the instruments that he uses to kill. Well, Cain was the beast. Cain was stirred up by him to kill Abel because he thought this was the seed. And he was successful, so he thought. But God had another plan. He gave Eve another son. Seth. And you know what it tells us about Seth? That after he was born, men for the first time began to call upon the name of the Lord. What that means in the context is the earth was developing and now for the first time men met in community for public worship. And you know who was the leader of it? Seth. And so Satan thought he got the victory when he killed Abel, but instead Seth was raised up and began public worship. All through history, when you look at this, Satan's always frustrated in his designs. This is why he's such an angry, hateful being today. He's been frustrated over and over and over. And the more you're frustrated in your evil purposes, the more you seethe. If somebody hates somebody and they try to take him down, and that person, instead of being taken down by the scheme, actually prospers because of it, you get angrier and angrier. This is Satan through history. The second example was Jacob and Esau. I'm giving examples. I'm not covering everything. We know from the Bible that when Rebecca was with a child, she had, she had two sons in her womb. But God gave a revelation at the time of that, and he said the younger, well, excuse me, the elder shall serve the younger. In other words, he was saying by prophecy, my chosen seed and the seed of Abraham to carry on the covenant will be Jacob, not Esau. Jacob was the one who was chosen by God. But Esau, who was Satan's minion and instrument, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. This is how much he, he, he loved the covenant of God. Jacob was not an evil man. Everybody's always down on Jacob. I don't believe that at all. I mean, Jacob was a sinner. I mean, even Abraham, we see sinning. We see sins in Jacob. Jacob loved God. Jacob wanted to serve God. Yes, he had a growth process, like we all do. It was Esau who was the evil one. And Esau hated Jacob. And he plotted to kill Jacob because Satan said, Ha, here's the seed of the woman. I've got to eliminate Jacob. But the plot became known. Jacob was warned. He fled to safety where he grew rich and birthed the 12 sons of Israel and came back to the land as a worshiper of God with a family of those God had given him. So Satan's plan was completely thwarted. Then we talk about Joseph. I've talked about this already. They were filled with hatred and jealousy concerning Joseph because Satan was suspicious that Joseph was the seed. But God preserved him in miraculous ways. Raised him up to be the prime minister of Egypt who then saves the 12 tribes of Israel from starvation. And so he thought he would kill Joseph, and through his desire to kill Joseph, he actually put Joseph in a position, that is, Satan did, put Joseph in a position to save Israel. Total frustration of his purpose. How about Pharaoh? What was his plan? And who was he inspired by? What, did he, what was his plan? I know, I'll kill all the male children of Israel. Remember that plan? They're all to be killed. 
Satan's behind that. The seed of the woman was a man-child. He knew that. So let's kill all of them. Pharaoh was in a position of power. He's one of my beasts. I'll use him. But he was frustrated by the Hebrew midwives who refused to carry out his order. And he was frustrated by the faith of a Hebrew woman by the name of Jochebed who loved God and loved her son and put him afloat in a basket. When it says in the New Testament he was a beautiful child, I don't think it's necessarily referring to the sense of his physical features. But Jochebed saw in her child, in her son, one destined to great things. God put that in her heart. God directed her to put Moses into the hands of his providence. And so she, by faith, took her son, put him in a little reed basket to float on the mighty Nile. And then another woman, Pharaoh's own daughter, who was the beast that Satan had raised up to kill the seed, the Pharaoh's own daughter saves the seed. In his own household, the seed is raised. Little Moses who became the deliverer of Israel. And Satan said, he keeps losing every time. What about King Saul? We mentioned him already. He knew and he heard that Samuel had anointed David to be king. And in his envy, in his hatred, and in his self-love, he was filled with uh, the desire to kill David. And he began by throwing javelins at him to try to kill him. Then he got his army together and chased him everywhere. He wanted to kill David. Who put that in his heart? Satan did. What was the outcome? Saul was ingloriously killed when he fell on his own sword against the Philistines. David became the the king of Israel. God made his messianic covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7, and therefore the whole purposes of God were advanced. You ever hear of Athaliah? She was the mother of Ahaziah, king of Judah. When he died young... She had this in her heart to become the royal person, to rule over Judah. And so in her utter wickedness, she went and killed, sought to kill, all the royal line of David. Again, Satan had now discerned, hey, it's through David this is going to come. And so he raises up an Athaliah to kill that line. But again, he's frustrated. And again, God uses a woman. The sister of Azahiah, deplores the actions of this woman and she takes Joash and hides him. I love this aspect of how God uses women in these, in these examples. The seed of the woman, now symbolically it's the whole church, male and female, but there's this interesting way in which women keep on coming on the scene in the Bible and, and, and acting in ways that are, are glorious. Okay, so what happens? After six years, Joash is revealed. He becomes king and Athaliah was slain and the Davidic line continued. Ah, Satan says, I lost again. Then he had another time where he had a, had a king with great power and he had an evil instrument by the name of Haman in the Persian Empire and he figured, I'm going to get rid of all of the women. I'm going to destroy the Jews, all of them. In his hatred and his blind pride, Mordecai 
excuse me, not Mordecai, Haman launched this plan originally because he hated Mordecai who would not worship him because he was faithful to the covenant of God. Mordecai was a godly man. He plotted not only his death but of all the Jews, but he completely failed. Again defeated by what? The faith and courage of a woman by the name of Esther. And the outcome of his plot is he gets hanged on the gallows he made for Mordecai, and his order and his that was that was um, signet ring signed by the king to kill all the Jews is turned on its head, and the Jews are given complete freedom and empowered to fight against all their enemies, and they come out far better at the end than they were in the beginning. And even Mordecai is raised a second in the kingdom. Satan is about beside himself with anger and rage, and all the other incidents come to this final one. The birth of Jesus. We know that story well, don't we? After the birth of Jesus, and uh, Satan said, no, this is he's, he's seed of David. This is a dangerous fellow. I know David's kingdom has been long gone, but who's this guy? What's these angels appearing in the sky announcing him? What's all this going on? A lot of activity down there in Judah. This must be the one. So he, so he comes to his beast, Herod. And when the wise men come and say, listen, we've seen a sign. He's the born king of the Jews. We've seen it in the east. We've come to worship him. And Herod, who was a bloodthirsty man, jealous man for power, hears this and then sort of lies, oh yeah, well, I'm interested to hear that. Uh, go find him and when you're done, tell me. I'll come and worship him. But his purpose, of course, was to seize the child and kill him. But he was frustrated by the wise men. And when he was frustrated by the wise men, he was so enraged that he had all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under, murdered. But again, he was, he was uh, uh, checkmated, as it were, by God, because uh, God gave a dream to Joseph of this and said to him to take the child and the mother and flee into Egypt. And he did before the soldiers ever arrived. Satan was... Frustrated, but that was not all. Study the book of Matthew, Mark, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do we see through all these times? When from almost the very beginning of his ministry, we have the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, and the, the, the Jewish leadership are plotting to kill him. Right? Kill him! They want him dead. Who put that in their heart? The dragon. He put it in their heart to kill Jesus. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we have these events where they, they gather up stones to stone him, and then we have this unexplained thing, but he walked through the midst of them. Or they take him to the precipice in, the, in, in Nazareth to cast him off a cliff that would kill him, and he walks through the midst of them. And we see this happening over and over because it's my time has not come. In John chapter 8, verses 37 to 47, Jesus says to them, Why do you seek to kill me? I know you seek to kill me. And they say, What are you talking about? He says, You're of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you're just like him. In other words, the Pharisees were the instruments of the dragon seeking to kill the child, Jesus. But they failed. But then finally, the devil has it all planned. He realizes he's got an inside instrument in Judas. He 
fills Judas with whatever hatred or envy or uh, whatever he used. He entices Judas. Judas goes to these wicked um, Jewish leaders and sells Christ. What was it? 30 pieces of silver? Do I get that right? Okay. I got him. So he thought. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Amen. And so the devil's, devil thought he had the victory. He thought he had finally took care forever this seed of the woman that had been threatened a threat over him since the Garden of Eden, and now he finally had him. And the crucifixion was such a gruesome event. All the hatred and wickedness of Satan was poured out. I finally got him. After centuries of frustration, I've got him. And then the tomb opened the third day. He is not here, for he is risen. And all of his kingdom came crushing down. Gone. And I think that's the next section of this, uh, this chapter. Is We will look at that fall. One final thing, if you can bear with me a few more minutes, before we look at the birth of the child, which we're not going to look at this week. I just want to finish this verse. And his, his tail drew a third part of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. I think we're in a place now to discuss these stars. Many consider this an account here of Satan's original rebellion against God and how it has fallen from that exalted position because of his pride. He also deceived and led one-third of the angelic realm into the rebellion and they fell with him. That's the common interpretation and it's the interpretation I used to hold to, but I don't hold to it anymore. The context here is not the primeval fall of Satan, but the events of history after Genesis 3. It's about the hostility of Satan to the woman and her children. Now, have we heard of stars in this passage yet? He drew a third of the stars down. Have we heard about any stars yet? Verse 1. Who are the stars? The tribes of Israel. I believe the same stars are in view. And what, what do I mean? What does that mean in the context then? I think it means this, that Satan, by his cunning throughout biblical history, was able to draw some of the stars or members of the church themselves into his plot to corrupt the woman and kill the children. The history that I just surveyed for you above, in four of the eight examples I gave you, the instruments to kill the seed were all Israelites. The brothers of Joseph. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisees and the scribes. In other words, Satan is able to draw into apostasy a third of Israel to be his instruments in destroying the woman and killing the seed. This is how devious enemies work. They infiltrate. They infiltrate. And they draw away people to be treasonous to their country and whatever. This is what we have here. Athaliah for, was another one I forgot. She was of Israel. The, 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 let me take this further here in a few minutes here. The, the amount of one-third is used in Revelation throughout. We saw this particularly in chapter 8. A third is a large and significant number, but not a majority. Moses Stewart said that a third refers to a definite quantity of a considerable amount. Chapter 8 he was commenting on. And uh, Adam Clark said the third part is a, a rabbinism, 
a rabbi-type saying, that expresses a considerable number. And so what we're seeing here is throughout biblical history how we see Satan has used a significant number of the members of Israel, the Old Testament visible church, to attack the true and faithful members in the church. Satan's most effective agents are those he corrupts within the church to attack the church and the Messiah. And when we bring this down to the time of Jesus and the early church, we see that the most rabid and vicious persecutors of the child, of the woman, that's Jesus and the early church, are who? The Jews. They're the, they're the stars, the apostate stars. Satan draws down and uses them to persecute the woman. Two more thoughts. The use of the one-third here also indicates that the woman, the church, has two dimensions. Always has. The outward or visible membership, which contains a significant number of false members. It's always been that way. Who may at any time become the willing tools of Satan against God and his people. That's the first dimension. The second dimension is the inward, invisible membership which contains the true church, the true believers and servants of God. And so here we have this introduced this idea of the visible church that contains people who the Satan can draw down with his tail, a people who can apostatize, and we have the true church that is the object of their persecution, who will not fall away. And so by way of application, and I'm not trying here to make precise calculations, that's not the point, don't get your calculator out and start dividing. We might say that the church has always been, Old Testament and New Testament, made up of three groups, three one-third groups. And I'm not saying they numerically are always 33%, 33%, 33%. I'm just saying there's three groups in the church there's always been. There's number one, the true and faithful and mostly obedient members of the church. Number two, the true, sometimes sadly unfaithful, and often disobedient members of the church. And finally, the third group, the false members, who have never exercised saving faith and are members of the church only in a visible sense, not in a regenerate sense. I wonder if these three groups roughly make up almost numerically, again, these are just thoughts I'm putting out now, of the membership of any church today. Approximately 33% of the church. This is all thoughts, approximations, are the faithful member. They're the core. And I've, look, I've been a pastor for over 40 years, and I've seen this kind of breakdown. There's that group that's faithful. Then there's another group. They're true Christians, but you really can't count on them. At any time, they might prove unfaithful, disobedience, cause some problems, or leave. Okay? And then there's a group in the church that you come to see were never truly saved. And they're the troublemakers. They're the ones who come. They're the ones who introduce heresies. They're the ones who introduce division and pain into the body of Christ. And so in a sense, this is a typical church. And I say to myself, which group am I in? Which third do I fit? Which third do you fit? The faithful members who mostly obey, none of us are perfect, we all stumble. Or are you in that group that, yeah, you're a true Christian, but you're, you know, you're sometimes unfaithful. You know? Sometimes you're disobedient. You don't really care too much. Other times you do, but you're just sort of there. And then the false group. You, you wouldn't happen to be a false member, would you? Never truly born again. 
I hope not. So let's step back. This is my final word. I keep telling you I'm about done, but... uh, Let's apply this interpretation to our context, the first century, and the Jews of Jesus and the Apostles' day. One-third, approximately, of the Jews in Jesus' day, and again, this is approximations, not not mathematical calculations. It's a visionary understanding. One-third of the Jews in the time of Christ were true Israelites, awaiting and longing for the coming of their Messiah. And they believed on Jesus. Some during his ministry, but most that did believe took place after his resurrection through the preaching of the apostles. And we see that in the book of Acts. Thousands of Jews were converted because they were true Israelites to begin with. They were brought to Christ. They, and if they weren't true Israelites to begin with, they now became them. Maybe I should put it that way. So a third. The other third were, another third were the enemies, the Pharisees, scribes who hated Christ. And they were persecuting and adamantly opposed to Christ and the apostles. And the other third were largely indifferent. They were too busy with life to get caught up in this Messiah debate. But if they saw some miracles of Jesus, the apostles, they were impressed. But then when they heard the Pharisees' rebuttals, they were impressed as well. And so there was that middle group that was just in there. But you got the third, who were the Messianic community that birthed the Messiah. And you've got the third that hated him. And then you've got the middle. It's another way to look at society, isn't it? In our society today, you've got those who stand for truth and righteousness and justice. And you've got this third that are revolutionaries who want to turn it all on its head. They're the destroyers, the destroyers of truth, the destroyers of justice, the destroyers of harmony and financial uh, prosperity in the land. And then you've got this big group in the middle who don't know what they believe, and they're back and forth, back and forth. Rush Dooney famously said, history is never controlled by majorities. Never. But always by dedicated minorities. Or using the language of our text, which of the other other two-thirds, this third group or that third group, is really the dedicated one? You know why our enemies are triumphing in the church and society? They're more dedicated than we are. They're more dedicated to their, their, their progressive, destructive vision than we are to the old way of Christ and justice and truth. Next week, we're going to get into, and I was going to cover this this morning, but I didn't. The birth of the child by the woman, his triumph over the dragon, and then we'll move into the next section. But I pray that today, that there's nothing else you remember from this, that in these, this vision we see on the, this, the, the uh, spread out on the easel, on the canvas of the sky is the whole history of, of mankind, the spiritual history. The woman, the church of Jesus Christ, and the dragon who hates the woman and her seed. And that we are in a war. The church is the most important group, we might call it an institution, but that can be sometimes misunderstood, in history. And if you're a part of it, you're part of the most important thing that God has ever done. It's not in politics. 
It's not economics. They have their place. But they have their place as Christians take dominion in those spheres and they overturn the works of darkness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text today. May we meditate on it. May we chew on it. May we digest it and be inspired by it. To the glory of Christ and to the demise of the dragon, we pray. Amen.